to say Indian cricket has taken or risen in the last 40 years uh, to a status that's unprecedented would be quite the understatement. Uh, we've seen uh, many epic wins. We've seen few World Cups. We've seen some heartbreaking losses. We've seen administrative changes. We've seen India become a power player. Indian players are superstars. And uh, we all have opinions, but uh, no one better than uh, Mr. Ayaz Memon, who's had the best seat in the house, which is a cricket ground, and to view all these happenings in a very close uh, vicinity and even written about it. So let me welcome Ayaz Memon to the show. It's an absolute honor, Mr. Memon, to host, host you. Thanks, Akib. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah, so I'm a fan and I'll, I won't even pretend to be a podcast uh, freelance journalist, which, uh, you know, I aspire to be in your company. I'll just throw in questions what uh, a nostalgic 80s kid would think when we have so many cricket memories that come to our minds. And uh, you will be, I guess, my my live uh, repository of all those anecdotes, facts, all those happenings that have shaped Indian cricket to the entity it has become. Uh, this conversation uh, will be more like a Q&A because I don't expect you to ask me a question and please don't. And uh, uh, <laughs> this, this will, uh, I can drive it in three ways, the way I thought. Uh, the overall uh, growth of the game, uh, some of its uh, phases, uh, um, not controversy, but some of those moments. And then some of the questions on how certain personnel and how certain superstars emerge. And last but not the least, how the world started viewing India. So, a standard question to kick this off. Uh, what is your association yeah. with cricket? When did it start and when did you realize that your passion is going to pay your bills one day? <laughs> well, actually, I was just, uh, you know, write, I was typing a, an intro to an anthology I'm putting together where I'm writing exactly this, how I got initiated into the game. So, I mean, look, growing up in India, you'll hardly find a guy, uh, you know, now even girls, but certainly boys 40, 50 years ago, uh, who, or 60 years ago, who didn't get engaged in, in cricket in some form or the other. So, yeah, I mean, look, I had, you know, uh, my earliest memories of following cricket actually go back to 1962, I would remember, if I remember correctly. And that was 62-63. And interestingly, it happened to be uh, an Ashes series between England and Australia being played in Australia, uh, which I, you know, I would listen to on Radio Australia. My father was an avid cricket fan. He was also a lawyer. So, you know, matches in Australia would start very early in the morning and you would get this Radio Australia commentary on shortwave, I remember. And he would listen to maybe a session before preparing to go to uh, his office and his, on the courts. And I would uh, listen to it before preparing for school. And that's how I got to know a little bit about the game, got got familiar with some names. And my, if, if my earliest heroes were Ken Barrington, Graham McKenzie and Norman O'Neill. Now, I, you know, I can't pinpoint an exact reason why these three names have stuck in my mind ever since I was a kid. I think it has come that all three of them performed extremely well in that series. So, you know, one got initiated into uh, the names, the players, the commentary. And then, of course, there was the home series uh, that was played in 63-64 in India against... Uh, against England. It was a weak England team, actually. The second string, B-grade England team, uh, which, you know, has, if you go along the timeline of Indian cricket, you'll find that this frequently happened. The best players would not come to India uh, in the 60s and 70s 
till of course india became a powerhouse but at that point in time and when you are 7 and 8 your you know your loyalty to any player is very fickle so barrington and o'neil and mckenzie were quickly sidelined by uh, mansur ali khan patodi actually he was called the nawab patodi then it was not till 1969 that he became mansur ali khan patodi because the privy purses were abolished and the other hero which i found in that age was ml jasima uh, and you know and largely through radio commentary very sarbatikari pierson surita devraj puri these were the guys who would tell us of these wondrous exploits of these players uh, and you know the style and the panache which made jasima such an attractive player uh, so so popular with such a wide appeal and of course the sheer aura of tiger patodi apart from being the captain of the team uh, you know playing with playing with one eye i mean it, it just boggles my mind and frankly sakeb i think that one can't do justice talking about patodi as part of a conversation you know he is somebody i think who demands a conversation or or an episode uh, of that absolutely i mean that's that's what i was going to propose to you that uh, let's keep him aside he's one of the most intriguing figures to me uh, just yes. because of the reason you mentioned and we can definitely touch upon him on, on another day when depending on your schedule and if you have time to spare uh but yeah your response is quite interesting and it opened a pandora's box of you know where i can take this further but uh, let me just stick to the fan moment so when you were listening to the commentary of ashes and this is way before television i think so what was way the, before, yes. what was your imagination were you reading about cricket because today's generation or even the last 25 years you know whenever a red sports star reading about gavaskar yeah. or tendulkar or even mackenroe i've seen visuals of them on tv so it really connected my mind didn't have to beg for imagination and work hard but when you are reading about these these players who are playing a game that you haven't seen live yet on tv you don't know yeah. what tv is at that point or maybe you do but there is no cricket i don't want to like you know put uh, put it out of context but uh, how are you painting the pictures in your mind of these guys that how someone is playing a cover drive if there is a hook shot or you know someone's getting clean bowl uh, how are you consuming this information and processing it as a young boy that's that's really interesting because there was no tv in, in television mumbai came in the early 70s uh, in delhi it came a little earlier so uh, television was not even on the radar as far as uh, you know i was concerned growing up uh, there was certainly radio commentary which was most vivid in feeding i mean you know feeding my imagination then there was of course uh, the the printed word which when you are 7 8 you are still not taken up so much by it you are just growing into understanding word your vocabulary is not big enough you are trying to you know get to read a lot more and that happened actually simultaneously so i got my first copy of the wisdom cricketers almanac uh in 1964 the summer we used to have a house in uh, lonavla which is not far from mumbai it's a hill it was a very sleepy small hill station at one point in time it's a bustling uh, you know crowded hill station now but my father would come over the weekend you know after he had finished his office work and one you know knowing because he was a fan also of cricket and knowing my growing interest in cricket he brought me this copy of of wisdom and which i you know when when we used to go to the station to fetch him when he used to come by the, the deccan queen which is one of the great trains in the world and he handed me this copy of the wisdom with his striking yellow cover and said Here, take this. You'll find everything you want to know about the game in this. And it boggled my mind. And you know, I said it, it was, you know, for me, just too much to carry. It was heavy. It was voluminous. You couldn't carry it in one hand. 
But what it did, it opened up a whole window into a new world. And I'll tell you how it opened up. This is the interesting part. So when he gave me this book, once we reached home and over the next day or two, I don't know when, he said, to my father said to me, so now I'm posing three questions for you and you have to answer them. So the three questions he posed were, uh, what is, who has the highest batting average in cricket? Who has taken the most wickets in a test match? And who scored a triple century and never played a test match again? Now, the first two were fairly easy to find even for me as a seven and a half, eight year old. Because, uh, you know, the highest average when you go to the Wisden Almanac and, you know, the section where the highest batting averages is Don Badman, 99.94. Most number of wickets in a test match, 19 by Jim Laker, 10, you know, 9 and then 10 wickets in the same test match. Mind-boggling uh, achievement. But the third one, now who's made it and never played again? And that really set me on a kind of a, you know, goose chase for uh, trying to find out where, uh, how, how, how I would get the answer. So, I dived into Wisden, the Almanac, a few times unsuccessfully. And I didn't know how the hell to find it. Then I, you know, I, you have to use your... Uh, you know, cleverness or imagination at that point a little bit. I found out all those who had made triple centuries because that was listed. And then I found out who had made, I mean, what were their career spans? That is also given in wisdom. If you look at it, it continues till, till today that, you know, you get the career spans of all the players for Australia, for England, for India, for West Indies, all those who played for these countries. And I found that there was this batsman who had made 325 in the 1929-30 series and his career ended there. He never played again because there was nothing to show of his career the career going further. And that batsman was Andrew Sandham. And, you know, as I having cracked that answer, it, I was completely overjoyed. And I'll tell you why it happened because this was a timeless test, India, uh, England versus West Indies. And, uh, you know, he made 325 and I think he made a half century also in the same match. Came back, never played another match again because he was already 39 years old. But all that information came to me much later. My joy was that I had cracked the answer and I had, you know, I didn't want to ask my father what the answer was. I wanted to present the answer to him. And when I told him that, he was, he was absolutely overjoyed. But what it did is it made, you know, like they say that the Wisdom Cricket Almanac is a, is a Bible for uh, for cricket lovers. It became a Bible for me. I just dived headlong into it and, you know, started consuming facts, factoids, the laws of the game, what different strokes would mean, reading player profiles, etc. And an offshoot of that was, because it fed my interest in cricket, I started reading newspapers more diligently or started reading them. With the, with the sports pages, obviously, not the other pages. And I started listening to the commentary a little more attentively. So, you know, when you're playing a hook shot and how you swivel, the batsman swivel, you would wait for the commentator's description to come in. And then I started collecting pictures of batsmen and bowlers, uh, particularly batsmen, because they would play a wider range of strokes. The pictures would be different. Uh, yep. The bowlers, the angle would be the same. So that's how I, my education in cricket began. I think it's a, I mean, my elementary education cricket started in 84. 
83-84 when my my dad introduced me to the touring West Indies and you know after the World Cup they they unleash havoc on our on our guys and I became a Gavaskar fan and I didn't appreciate the game it was just Gavaskar should score you know as an eight or nine year old that that was my focus uh, so let me ask you this uh, going back to your earlier response who are your heroes uh, that cricket was competing with because for me it was Tintin. Uh, Amitabh Bachchan and then maybe a year later Boris Becker. So and Boris Becker took over. Tennis became my first thing, and cricket was always a close second. So who yeah. who was competing for your attention? Was it hockey? Was it films? Was it something else? Track compared to cricket? Well, hockey, yes, from the world of sports. Uh, films certainly because in India you you know the two abiding passions. Actually, there are three. One is politics, which we are not discussing, but the other two abiding passions are uh, cinema and cricket, uh, and then by extension also sports. So, I mean, in cinema, the guys who I remember growing up were, that's because of conversations. My father would never watch movies. He was very conservative and strict. But my mother would sneak away from movies uh, and watch them with her, you know, with her uh, pals, with her friends. When my father was away in office, this would be a matinee show, 11 o'clock, somewhere close by to the house. Uh, and the the hero which who everybody looked up to in cinema was Dilip Kumar. He was a big guy, you know, and everybody, the conversation amongst the ladies in the house or some others, the uncles and all who came, there would be Dilip Kumar, there would be Rajendra Kumar, Devanand, Raj Kapoor. These were the names one grew up with, Madhubala, movies like Mughal Azam, Ganga Jamna, Madhumati. I mean, these are all Dilip Kumar movies, but Jindesh mein Ganga Baiti hai. So I know it might make me seem like a fuddy daddy, but you know, this is the scene as it was no no i'm uh, watching i'm watching some of these uh, during covid i watch i watch jagte raho i watch madhumati i'm yes. polishing on dilip dev saab all those guys yeah go ahead <laughs> and then there was obviously hockey because india was such a powerhouse in hockey you know uh, once you start reading the sports pages you realize what the olympics stands for what a what a gold medal stands for and what a hockey gold meant for the country uh, so hockey became and also in school uh, i went to uh, you know a school in Mazagao in Mumbai where we played a lot of these sports. It was a fairly sports active school. So, even as a kid, I mean, athletics, uh, you know, hockey, cricket was actually not so much uh, favored by the by the staff there, by the teachers and PT teachers, etc. It was hockey, football, athletics, uh, you know, which, which was given prominence. But hockey became a big sport for me, just reading about the achievements. And then, of course, I also remember at that point in time reading a lot more, a lot about tennis because I think tennis was also, uh, you know, Rod Laver, Roy, the not the Americans, it was the Aussies who were ruling then, uh, you know, internationally. There was Laver, Emerson, Fred Stolle, uh, John Newcomb, uh, Hoard, Roach. Uh, yes, Tony Roach. And then, uh, yeah, so these were the guys uh, who one, you know, read about more than having said, uh, seen them. Or even heard the commentary. I, I never heard the commentary for tennis and never watched TV. But my interest in sports was expanding and primarily driven by cricket. So let me fast forward this uh, to the day you covered your first match professionally. You wrote about it or whatever capacity you covered it. Did you ever envision cricket to be such a phenomenon in India, to be such a power player? in the financial health of the game as, you know, uh, we live in COVID and discuss, you know, the possibility of an IPL and, you know, the superstars we have. Uh, if someone told you back then, what would have been your reaction? I mean, 
you know this is out of a dream scenario who would have ever thought this is an impossibility to think that india would become the bastion for cricket i'm talking of the late 60s early 70s my first match i saw as a journalist and i was there as basically an odd job man you know for, I, I, i was i i wasn't planning to be a sports journalist i was studying law i first I, I failed in my endeavor to be a to be an engineer. I realized very quickly when I joined college that I can't be an engineer because I was quite rotten in mathematics, advanced mathematics and physics. So there, the ambitions of becoming an engineer went out of the window. And I was very, uh, you know, I mean, not very, but I was not keen on becoming a lawyer because that was my father's vocation. I didn't want to want it to seem like you know, whatever the in your father's footsteps, you also become a lawyer. because he passed away in 73 so when i went to college i realized i couldn't do engineering or i didn't want to do engineering i did my graduation in economics uh and then i i did join law and while i was studying law i joined you know since they were institute of communications time pass karne ke liye karte hain evening classes tha you know let's go and study in the evenings and maybe have a little fun but while i was there i got a job with sports week magazine which was also publishing at that point in time uh, it had just started midday the newspaper now i'm talking of 1979 so england came to india to play the jubilee test this was an english team led by mike brailey which came from australia having uh, you know performed well or whatever they 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 played then we came here and played the jubilee test in, at the one k day and i was to do the side stories but what it gave me was a ringside view of cricket sitting in the press box right behind the bowler's arm or right right in line with the stumps and watching a match electrifying atmosphere i was i had watched matches from the north stand or the east stand earlier from 1965 64 onwards uh, but i had never watched a match from the press box and that feeling was quite extraordinary and then i realized i was being paid to go and watch sport especially cricket from this vantage position this grandstand view and that you know attract i had gone there टाइम पास करते हैं बट देन आई सेट के दिस इज रियली एक्साइटिंग एंड देन आई गॉट एन ऑपरचुनिटी आई डिड द एशियन गेम्स इन एटी टू इन डेली आई डिड आई गॉट एन ऑपरचुनिटी टू आई टू गो टू पाकिस्तान इन नाइनटीन एटी टू एटी थ्री क्रॉस द वागा बॉर्डर ऑफ द पेपर खालिद अंसारी दैट आई एम गोइंग टू पाकिस्तान एंड यू नो आई डू समाइड स्टोरी Our writers will be Asif Iqbal, Omar Qureshi, etc., etc. As it happened, the first Test match with Lahore, Asif Iqbal didn't land up for whatever reason. He had some other work, so he didn't turn up. And in those days, we used to have the telex machines where we communicated, no cell phones. So I sent a message to Khalid Ansari saying, "You know, Asif Iqbal is not here. What do you want me to do?" So he said, "Why don't you file a report?" So I wrote a, you know, the day's play. The first Test was being played in Lahore, and I got a feedback from him after the third day that. Please write for the other matches also. Now I didn't have the money to cover the entire series. It was six Test matches, but I lived on very meager means, and I covered the entire series. In hmm. the meanwhile, my legal my legal studies were taking a back seat, and then the World Cup happened in 1983, and I said this is a tournament I must cover. So I again, you know, took some got some funds from Sports Week, put in my own money, went there, covered the tournament. India won that tournament, and that's when I made up my mind. that you know law goes out of the window journalism is my calling that, that, that's a huge moment right there and i'm sure you've been asked you know 
countless times about uh, the 175 not out against Zimbabwe and India winning the World Cup. So, uh, at the peril of not making you repeat yourself and, you know, anybody who's followed your work knows what you have said. But uh, just to bring focus on that, uh, that experience covering that event and then what followed, you think that's the single most important uh, event that shaped Indian cricket? I think so. I think so. Because, uh, I mean, look, there are many meritorious events. The 1971 victories in West Indies and England, uh, which is called the renaissance of cricket, in, the, in a sense, is ushered in. Because we had never beaten West Indies in West Indies. We had never beaten England in England. And both happened, you know, at that point in time. So, that was a huge turning point. But the World Cup in 1983 kind of had a, you know, it just turned the cricket world upside down. A, for cricket in India. You know, nobody expected India to win this tournament. India was the dull dogs of cricket. Of, of cricket. In 1975 and 79, in two World Cup tournaments, you know, it, it had been a miserable performance. The only victory against East Africa. In 83, you know, I mean, even for me, though I was a great fan of Indian cricket and follower of Indian cricket and a professional to cover Indian cricket, I didn't go and see the first match involving India in the World Cup. I went to see England versus New Zealand at, at, at the Oval because I said India versus West Indies, it's a waste of time. Yeah, India goes a lot of West Indies. Yeah, and as a you fan, know? I think you made the, I mean, by then, a good choice because you wanted I to say... Point, but, you know, a miracle happened there. <laughs> a miracle happened there. India beat West Indies on the second morning because of rain. The match extended into the next day and they won. So, that was a big lesson for me as a professional. That whatever is assignment, you can't move away from it. And I started tagging the Indian team, obviously, after that uh, completely, you know, entirely. But... For India to win that tournament, and you know the couple day winnings at one of 175 is very crucial to understand here. We were on the brink of being ousted from that tournament, and he, this man comes and plays this most incredible knock 175 not out of 262, uh, you know, and then not only turned that match on its head, but the tournament because after that India went from strength to strength. Suddenly, you know, a Junoon, a Josh, you know, there's a yes. sudden self belief which rises that we can do it. And then you go and beat the West Indies in the final. And it stuns the world. It astonishes the world. But what it does in India is it just opens up the floodgates of passion, of, you know, uh, everybody wanting to do something for cricket. Now, I think, you know, it's a very dramatic change which happened there because, A, in the cricketing sense, India got more self-belief. I'll just explain to you why. Because in between 83... 84 and 85, India won four world, uh, four ODI tournaments. The World Cup, the Asia Cup, the World Championship of Cricket and the Rockman's Cup. And, you know, so suddenly they became a powerhouse in limited lowest cricket, which was becoming very popular. And then six, seven years later, or seven years later, in 1991, uh, is of course the opening up of the economy. And that kind of just just provided so much money coming into cricket in terms of sponsorship, in terms of, you know, and everybody, you see, when disposable income goes up, also people start spending more for whatever their passion and their pursuits are. Cable TV came around the same time. The gospel of cricket spread far and wide across the country. The footprint of cricket went across the country and it became a mega, mega sport 
in India. Not just that it became a mega sport in India, it became actually a challenger to Lords as the mecca of cricket. In my opinion, India, India became, or if you want a, uh, an exact position, uh, a stadium, then I would say Eden Gardens became the, the mecca of cricket because that's where everybody, uh, that, that's the stadium and the crowd and the, the fans that everybody started talking about. And by the time we won the 2007 World T20 Championship, just post that, we are not. We were not only the mecca of cricket, but we had also become the El Dorado of cricket. This is where bounty was a plenty. This is where money was to be made. Every damn cricketer in the world wanted to come in India and play in the IPL. Yeah, this is this is where it became known that cricket is the Indian sport invented by the British. I mean, it was official. Yes. So, let me just uh, stay there on the 83 and uh, your access to players. Wh- what did change? Uh, of course, players, you know, rightfully so became superstars, role model, and I'm sure, you know, endorsements in cricket, you know, that became a new thing. But uh, what do you what do you recollect of that uh, that World Cup, the Prudential World Cup in, in UK and uh, your interaction with some of the Indian team? And since then, how has that evolved? Not in a bad way because sport has become professional. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of PR, there's a lot of every soundbite is managed. and uh, But if you compare uh, Ayaz Memon covering the 83 World Cup to how you say reach out to a Virat Kohli or a Ajinkya Rahane today, how has the relationship changed uh, between media and player and what are some of the interesting anecdotes if you can package this into one response from back then? Yeah, it's a very sanitized environment now, you know, and perhaps justifiably because there's so much uh, you know, demand made on the players. There's also the security and the safety angle, etc., etc. But 1983, I mean, there was unimaginable freedom for the players and for the journalists in a way. You know, uh, there were, for that matter, let me just tell you that there were only six of us from India in '83 in England. Uh, and now, you know, in the in the 2019 World Cup, when I went there to England, there must have been about at a conservative estimate, maybe about 80 or 90 Indian journalists. And the India-Pakistan match must have attracted because they came for one match and went back. But there must have been a, you know, Indian press corps might have been about 125, 130. So that's how huge it has become as a media, uh, you know, exercise to cover cricket. But, so two things happened in 1983. One was that I was 20, what, 27. So pretty much you know, the same age group as uh, Sandeep Patel, Dilip Venkatsarkar, Kirsti Azad, Kapil Dev, Shrikant was a couple of years younger. So you were part of the same age group. And there was so much distancing between the players and the media then. Well, you know, I mean, it's not that we were all buddy buddies, but the access was far greater, far, far easier and far greater. You could, we didn't have cell phones. You had to, you know, you could leave a request and say, you know, can we to this player and they were, you would be called to the dressing room. You could you could go and meet a player in the dressing room while a match is going on. Now, it might amaze you, Sakib, that at least, if I remember correctly, seven or eight overs of that match when Kapil Dev made 175 not out, I watched from the Indian dressing room at Tunbridge Wells. I reached a little late for that match because I was scrounging on money traveling in England, so I didn't take uh, a P-car ticket from London to Tunbridge Wells. I said, yeah, India versus Zimbabwe, I think it was there, but I'll save 50% of the money, pounds I'll save. So when I reached Tunbridge Wells from the, from the station to the ground, to Neville ground, you know, huffing and puffing, trying to reach my place in the press box, 
match had started. I walked in. I hadn't even seen the scorecard, uh, the, the, the scoreboard, and the the Indian dressing room was right next to the passageway. So I hopped in because I saw Bundapa Vishwanath standing there in the porch outside the dressing room. It was on the ground floor. So I hailed him, said hello, and I said, you know, I, I went up and started talking with him. And I was so excited, I didn't even see the scoreboard. And I asked him, what's happening? What's happening? And you know, he turned around and told me, don't worry, nothing. You know, everything is fine. Everything is fine. And I was wondering, what the hell is he telling me? Then I looked at the scorecard. It was 9 for 4 or, nine, or 10 for 4. And then it became 17 for 5. And then, you know, Kapil Dev started building up a partnership. First with Binning and then, of course, with Kirmani. And then the, the magnitude of that innings and that match, you know, dawned on me. I, I went to the uh, the press box, which is actually a Shamiana uh, on the ground, to, to take my position there. But the point, but point I'm going to make is that's how access, you know, accessible players were in those days. There were times I won't name uh, the players, but you know, in London we went out a few times together. You know, night on the tiles. Let's go out and check out London. You know, because yeah, we were also of the same age group, but also. The fact is that the access was far greater. I mean, today it's unthinkable. You can't, you know. Is it now? Is it same for uh, India only uh, that has changed, or you think some countries like where cricket is uh, relatively low profile, like in New Zealand? Of course, you don't expect journalists, you know, to have that kind of access. But you think the environment is just strictly changed for India? Overall, cricket is very professional, and uh, the lines are clearly drawn now. No, I think it's overall now. I, do, I mean, India, because the pressure is greater, because Indians are all superstars now. India is, you know, the bastion of the game, as I mentioned. New Zealand, perhaps, you know, because it's not such a big sport in New Zealand. The players may be more accessible privately, informally, you know. But during a match, I mean, there are serious limitations now because of, you know, anti-corruption laws, uh, sanitization, security, etc. in place. You can't think of entering a dressing room at all. You know, you can't even carry a cell phone very close to a player in a, in a closed environment. So, it's a very sanitized environment today. And it's not that the players wouldn't want to be, you know, casual or meet you, etc., etc. I also think it's a sign of the times that we live in. No, of course, there's a lot of complication because it's become such a big industry and then everything uh, with today's, uh, you know, technology uh, could be created in a way to take out of context. So, totally understand the care around it and and how these relationships have... There's a channel of trust. I mean, even for me to have you on this podcast, you know, there's a common connection. And I totally understand that even though mine is a very small space, it's purely done out of passion and hobby. I'm not affiliated, but I I, I get it, uh, how complex, uh, because the stakes are so high, uh, the situation has become. I mean, so let's stick with Kapil's 175 for one more question, and then we move on. Is it the greatest innings that you've ever seen? Uh, It still remains that, or... If it's not, then which one is greater than this? In ODI, in, in my opinion, Sakib, and I may be guilty of some bias because I saw it live. I saw it. I mean, you know, the match was never covered because BBC was on strike that day. So there's no radio commentary on that match, nor is there any television footage on that match. You have to rely on eyewitnesses like me, Kapil Dev himself, the Indian team, the Zimbabwe team, and the spectators who were there to tell you what happened. In my opinion, I still rate it as the greatest ODI innings. Ever. Now, I can explain to you that. I mean, there have been, you know, guys who made triple hundred. Viv Richard made 189 and, you know, terrific knocks. Saeed Anwar made 194 against India. Brilliant. Uh, Rohit Sharma has hit 
three triple centuries. Sehwag and Sachin Tendulkar was the first to hit a double century, and Sehwag, of course, followed. So guys have made more runs than uh, than uh, than Kapil Dev. But look at the you have to contextualize uh, the performances. Nine for four, as I mentioned, seventeen for five. This guy goes out and plays and makes one hundred seventy-five out of two sixty-two. Without that knock, India were finished in that tournament. So India win that match, then win that tournament, and winning that tournament transforms not just Indian cricket but cricket globally. I can't think of any other innings, ODI innings, that has had a similar impact. You know, I can think of a T20 tournament which. You know, obviously, India won the final against Pakistan, the inaugural one in 2007, and that had it had a massive impact. It was not one player, but it was the team's effort and beating Pakistan, and it just kind of fired the imagination of the entire world. And the entire cricket world is actually made up of 70% Indians, so you know where it had the largest impact. But couple days, for my couple days, 175 not out to my money, or to my mind, remains the greatest ODI innings ever. Yeah, that's that's pretty much how I would imagine the response because yeah, there's so much writing on it, the match itself, the pressure situation, then and what transpired and what you know the impacts were. So yeah, uh, nicely put there. So if I were to compare this '83 team to the '85 team under Sunil Gavaskar that won the World Series championships in Australia, where Ravi Shastri was man of the series, uh, again a very standard question, but it's total '80s nostalgia. Which team is better and why? So I think I would say that the '85 team is better for the sheer consistency. Look, the players, the core of the team remained the same. So what happened between '83 and '85 is guys like Sandeep Patel, Kirti Azad, Sayed Kirmani, Sunil Watson, they lost their places, and the guys who came in were youngsters like Mohammad Azharuddin, El Sivaramakrishnan, uh, Sadanan Vishwanath, Chetan Sharma. So it got a lot more young legs, young lungs. Lot more energy. The fielding became, I think, a little better. Not that the ADCB team didn't feel well, but I think it got used. Uh, it, look, the '83 win was completely unexpected. It was like a, you know, bolt from the blue. By '85, there was a measure of mastery which you saw in this team playing in Australia, winning all matches, beating all teams, and going on to win. And not just winning all, uh, winning all matches. Bowling the opposition out in every match in Australia, so that was a tremendous achievement. And I think the balance and composition of the team was fantastic. Uh, it was very, you know, marvelously led by Sunil Gavaskar, uh, and it threw up a lot of stars uh, for Indian cricket, you know, which which we all know about the names. But I think that the '85 team and Ravi Shastri actually made this point recently, you know, when this anniversary came up sometime in March. Of the of the win, and he said the '85 team would uh, give Virat Kohli's team a run for its money. I think it would do more, perhaps more than that, because uh, you know we all tend to think of the current stars as the best and the greatest, and some of them are. You know, I mean Virat Kohli, Rohit Sharma, uh, Jasprit Bumrah, all these guys, Ravindra Jadeja, these are fantastic players, uh, and you know Mohammad Shami, but. It does not mean. I mean, if you if you put the eighty-five team today and you see it in context, I think the balance of that team was fantastic. They would they would you know adapt and adjust to any situation, any circumstances, any pitch. 
And, and I read something, uh, a similar discussion on this 85 team, maybe last year on Twitter, and uh, a very reliable source, you know, who keeps uh, his, who knows his stats on uh, on cricket and Twitter, mentioned that this 85 team had a lot of s- safe pair of fans, not many drop catches between that group. So they were also comparing it with, I think, the current team. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting how the game has changed, but certain achievements still stand out. And as you rightfully pointed out, that team beat everyone because the Prudential World Cup was a round robin in two groups. So you you know that's the luck of the draw. You didn't you didn't have to play everyone here. The road to the championship went through everyone. So yeah, that's uh, that's definitely I think the standout comparison. So let's talk about the two leading men of the eighties, uh, or the two captains, Sunil Gavaskar and Kapil Dev. In Indian cricket, again, the administration, the selection uh, had the roles swapped. I mean, some even say some musical chairs. They both kept changing places. So when you were covering cricket, uh, A, what was the impact of this current, uh, you know, or this uh, this shift? Because today, most captains, I think, going back from Azhar for the last 28 years or so, have been given longer reigns. It's five years uninterrupted, six, seven years, and that's how we always wished. So if you recall those events between Sunny and, and Kapil, and uh, how, how did that impact the team? Uh, were there any, you know, nuances, any observations you made from close quarters and if you want to share with the team, uh, with the audience here. Yeah, sure. I, I, look, this is very interesting and intriguing. You know, I mean, if, if one looks at the sweep of Indian cricket history, and especially over the last 50 years, this is a, a very pertinent question. Uh, you know, the captaincy changing hands so frequently be, between Kapil Dev and Sunil Gavaskar. You know, we talked about the 85 victory where Gavaskar was captain. The 83 victory, Kapil Dev was captain. The Asia Cup victory in 1984, Gavaskar was captain. The Rockman's Cup victory in 1985, Kapil Dev was captain. So, even while India was doing extremely well in ODIs, actually had become a force to reckon with, perhaps the best team in the world at that point in time in ODI cricket, uh, you know, maybe alongside West Indies, uh, the captaincy kept going back and forth. And yet, the team did well. Interestingly though, in the same period, actually from 1981-82, when India played England, uh, till 1986, India didn't win a single test series, not even at home, not overseas. So the shift was so dramatic from, uh, you know, being absolute, you know, uh, absolutely not adept at ODI cricket to becoming extremely adept at ODI cricket and simultaneously losing some some hold over their test match results. But that apart, as a journalist, I can tell you that the couple wave, Gavaskar, you know, uh, captaincy being tossed between the two of them, almost like a, a tug of war, was something that obsessed us as journalists, occupied our minds. This is something that we wanted to always find out what the hell is happening because it would keep recurring. Uh, so, it must be put in context. I think there was a, till that phase, certainly, Indian cricket was driven by politics. Uh, the north, the northwest divide was very strong. Was it an extension of the Gavaskar Bedi in some ways? Because Gavaskar couple, what I read, and I recall as a young boy, was far more civil. But between Gavaskar and Bedi, there was no love lost. And there's a lot of, uh, you can Google many anecdotes. Uh, so yeah. was it an extension of uh, that, uh, some sort of a rivalry within the team for control? 
I I don't know whether it will be only for because of Bedi, but it could be. It certainly uh, was, you know, because of the North-West divide. You know, till that time, the South was also becoming a very powerful force, especially Karnataka uh, in, in 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 cricket. But it's not in the BCCI politics. But the North-West, you know, situation was quite taut and tense. and therefore i think it played out also in their in the in the careers of kapil dev and and gavaskar uh, where the captaincy is concerned more than anything else because as players you couldn't you know they were matchless in my opinion one of if you have to look at the history of cricket perhaps gavaskar is among the top 3 openers in the world of all time and kapil dev if you have to look at him maybe in the first 5 6 7 all rounders of all time and certainly the greatest cricketer and all round cricketer that india has produced but when it comes to see because a lot of the things in those days were run by administrators who were doing their own stuff to get more powerful and you know make make their own decisions more material to the prospects of indian cricket rather than what the cricket itself could do uh, which is not so much the case now look at it today you'll find that the selection committee also is not necessarily made up of former great players you know if you look at the current indian selection panel or the one before this it's not boasting of great names i'm not saying that the great names played this role but and that was a historical tradition just to put it again in context in 1958 59 in the series against west indies india had four captains in five test matches you know the captaincy in the early 50s after independence uh when india became uh, you know an independent country and cricket started after that it would be vijay hazare it would be lala manna they would be vijay merchant all these guys became captains of the teams against you know as i mentioned 58 59 four captains it is only with tiger patodi that things started stabilizing he got an eight year run azimuddin got an eight year run and then of course i think mahendra singh dhoni uh got a run from what 2008 2008 to 2013 when he decided to quit on his own as a test test uh, captain but he continued a couple of years more as a, as a ODI captain and a T20 captain so 10 years before 80 1980 were always whimsical and the guys who pulled the strings were not necessarily the players but what it did was it made the players you know insecure and worried about what each other was doing and therefore sometimes or more often than not it would lead to tension within the dressing room i don't think that there was no tension between kapil dev and gavaskar certainly there was if you are the captain one day and not the captain the next day you are bound to be aggrieved but i don't think they had a problem with each other as players you know i think they had a is you know it's like when you look back now in fact they they are good pals now and they play each other to the skies uh, but the feeling could have been and i'm just this is a surmise that if i was in gavaskar's place or i was in kapil dev's place in the 80s i would say yaar isko he should know me because we play together why couldn't he take a certain different position and vice versa do, do you recall so I, i mean i'm sure you recall but what was uh, what is the memory Uh, of Kapil Dev's axing of you know that uh, in, in that Test match, you know, otherwise he would have played those hundred matches too again. Uh, yes. How was the how was that viewed back then, and uh, is it viewed any differently today in the cricketing circles? 
Well, it was shocking then, to be honest, because uh, to to get rid of Kapil Dev for even for a one test match was uh, uh, you know blasphemous, so to speak. Because yes, he played a bad shot, so did some of the others, but he was not picked for the next next test match. And everybody assumed that it was Gavaskar's call, and he decided. Subsequently, selectors and board secretary A. W. Karmadikar and the selectors who were then Dilip Sardesai, etc., etc., said that it was a decision they had taken. But remember, the feud became quite public. It, it reached the stage where the board president N. K. P. Salve had to call both both of them to Nagpur and tell them, guys, take it easy. You're in the team, and we need you to play for India. So let's not kid ourselves that there was no tanav and no tension. There was certainly. I think the it's a it's the couple days being dropped for that match against uh, England in, in Calcutta, and that's the match in which Azaruddin actually made his debut and made his debut with a hundred. Was uh, broke his you know chain of consecutive matches. It's the only match he's missed missed uh, a Test match, you know, and this it's tribute to couple days fitness. But it also had a You know, it was the biggest talking point of Indian cricket in those, not just in that week when the match was played, or the weeks in which that Test series was played, but for quite some time. And of course, as it happens, that India lost that series, went to Australia, and won the World Championship of Cricket with Gavaskar as captain. Came back to Sharjah and won Rasmus Cup with Kapil Dev as captain. So a lot of things kind of got neutralized. So, any 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 young listener who is listening in to this episode, why after winning the World Series, why is Kapil captaining in Sharjah? Fill us uh, fill us on that gap. I mean, that doesn't make sense at all. But a lot of things didn't make sense back in the day. So, yeah. No, no. There's a there's a very good reason why it makes sense. That's because Gavaskar uh, had declared before going to Australia for the World Championship of Cricket that this is going to be his last series, and he announces. Uh, As as captain, and then when he won the, uh, you know the, the uh, oh, in fact when he won the tournament, he announced that this is it. He doesn't want to captain anymore. He had come under a lot of flak because India being beaten by David Gower's team, which was again a second string second string B grade team from England, was a big setback for uh, for Indian cricket and for Gower personally as a captain. And in all this mix was this drama of Kapil Dev being dropped for that match. Uh, it, at Kolkata, so a lot of things were happening. It was a very fertile period in Indian cricket for controversies. So this uh, really makes me, you know, uh, dive a little deeper here. Uh, so it's pretty clear, you know, the exchange you explained and uh, and the administration, the way cricket was ran. So anyone who's listening today, uh, we can fairly come to an assessment that this is where cricket was ascending towards popularity. But as great as as great as Sunil Gavaskar and Kapil, they were. They were still not bigger than the game, and today, some of the players, maybe not today, in the last ten years or so, have become bigger than the game. That you know, people who run it won't admit it, but that's how it is. Superstar business. So I'm not a fan of the current climate, but at the same time, I'm also not a fan of what happened. You know how the players were treated with uh, you know this knee-jerk reactions. So do you feel uh, both worlds are not perfect, and one could have benefited from you know say Kapil and Uh, Gavaskar, if they were as celebrated as Tendulkar and Kohli, you know, maybe they were they would have been treated a little better by the powers. And similarly, today, we, what we had with a guy like Anil Kumble and you know whatever happens in cricket, 
you know, maybe the administration should have a little more control. Uh, do you know what I'm trying to say? I mean, both situations are far from perfect. Yeah, I mean, but but there are reasons for it, uh, Sakib. Let me explain. So, for instance, should Kapil Dev and Gavaskar have been getting as much bow and attention and money and rewards as uh, Tendulkar or Dhoni or Kohli today? You know, I think, again, you have to, you know, put it in, uh, situationalize it, if I may use that word, that uh, there was no cable TV, there was no digital media, there was no, uh, you know, amplification of what players are doing the way it is today. Today, somebody makes a half century and, you know, performs in front of TV uh, on the ground, you know, celebration, gesticulation that is played 10,000 times uh, on cell phones across the world on television channels, on news channels. And therefore, you know, the power of uh, of the visual medium and the way this message is communicated is, you know, zillion times greater than what it was in the old days. I mean, think of guys like, uh, you know, at least when Gavaskar and Kapil Dev were in their peak and their pomp, there was, there was television. But what about, I mean, I sometimes think about a guy like a Salim Durrani, you know, he would be such a great fit for a T20 match. 20 cricket now and the kind of things that he could do with the bat and with the ball but you know nobody will even talk about him today because he's just gone in the past but that's how it is that's how life changes uh, I think that you know technology and the media the consumption of sport is changing so rapidly that you know it's difficult to compare from era to era uh, and therefore one can't have long-term grievances on it. You know, you can't say, oh, but in my time, I never got this and all these guys are getting this now. Yeah, but, you know, that time, those times have changed. Also, I think the, the fall, if it happens, is far harder and difficult to accept today uh, when players, you know, get... Because this, they, they have so much more to lose in that sense. No, no absolutely. I'm not even questioning. And I think th- thanks for, like, explaining in, the, in, in full context there. But, uh, for example, a couple, they would not back in the day, had, say, if you take Pataudi or Bedi as coaches, like what happened with Kumle, I think that's where I think the conversation has shifted. And I think you rightly explained the game has a bigger appeal. And uh, fair or not fair, you know, the the, yeah. the, the, the the lines have been drawn and it's, 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 it's a business. The sport is a business and there's like, you know, so much, uh, you know, the commerce that's driven through it. That's what I was uh, trying to yeah. highlight. But yeah, I think yeah. you answered it. Yeah. yeah. No, I also want to highlight this. You mentioned this, whether, you know, cricketers have become bigger than the game, especially in the Indian context. You know, that's, there's a way of looking at it. I think sports, across sports, players have become bigger than the game, if you want if you want to see it that way. You know, whether it's a Federer and Nadal or a Djokovic and Andy Murray. I mean, you know, ATP is run by players today. If you look at football, I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi and some of the great footballers, they call the shots. Uh, so, administration has its own place, but the demand of the uh, fans has become greater and greater towards knowing more and more about their players. The agitation becomes greater and obviously also the criticism is also great. You know, somebody doesn't perform well, they'll be dumped. So, in that sense, things have changed and the players also, therefore, are you know, money has got, gone through the roof. When I started covering cricket, and I'm talking of what, 1979 now, you know, 41 years back, I think the match fees was just about 1,000 rupees. 
today it runs into 10 lakhs and it's not to, for a match which you get apart from your annual contract in Indi in the indian contracts the a a listers get about 7 crore a year you know which is their contract and then they get travel allowance and business allowance and then they get you know endorsements etc there's no comparison and administrators know that without these players they can't do you know they have nothing to hold on to the sport will crumble so it's a it's a very complex scenario you know and therefore uh, i i think that you know it, it's a very situational thing how you see it whether all players have become bigger than the game you know i have a reservation on that line of thought and i'll tell you why because this is cricket like any sport can be very cruel you know you you are a little late you can lose your place in a minute you know one bad knock uh one dismissal could finish your career and then you may have the money but you don't have a livelihood if you know what i mean uh, not in terms of money but being there so money is one strong aspect of it but they also these are guys now are performing artists they live life on the edge and it's not an easy life that they lead that's all i can say no there's definitely not the insinuation i wanted to make but again uh, yeah the the game has definitely changed and i think you covered quite a lot there so let me bring in couple other names uh, dilip vengsarkar became captain after uh, kapil dev and a uh, lot of people in my generation at least not a lot but people i interact with thought ravi shastri was the obvious choice since he was a vice captain and some even go as far as saying he was the best test captain we never had back then so talk about the vengsarkar shastri uh phase of indian cricket when shastri was a deputy and he didn't get the job and vengsarkar became the captain so i mean look dilip vengsarkar was also vice captain for a while and then uh, you know he, he he became the captain when uh, you know these guys were banned for a while kapil dev etc who for a series the masala series as they used to call it exhibition matches in in america after the 1989 tour Uh, but before that dilip was captain for a year year and a half he got injured for a match ravi was his vice captain and he captained in the west indies and won the only match that he captained in uh, ravi shastri won i think the you know it was always a bit of a musical chairs about the captaincy and the vice captaincy ravi was a vice captain for a very long time but captain only one match he captained mumbai in a few seasons and led them also to the title ranji trophy title Uh, very successful captain. Uh, everybody who's played with him and under him, you know, thinks that he had, uh, he had not just not just sound tactics, but he had a lot of you know bravado. Not false bravado, but he had a lot of self belief, uh, which a lot of people now, when they listen to him, they think it's bombastic. Be that as it as it may, Dilip Pengsarka, very senior pro, very very fine thinker on the game because I know him quite well personally. uh and you know he would always talk so much sense about cricket i learned a lot from him in trying to understand the game he was among the first to spot the potential of uh, uh, sachin tendulkar when he you know as a 14 15 year old playing school cricket and doing well because he went and watched him play uh, club matches and full matches and said you know i want this guy should be in the team the selectors didn't pick him for the 1989 tour of uh, of the west indies thinking that Tendulkar was only 15, but had played Ranji Trophy, Rani Trophy, and Dilip Trophy, and made centuries on debut in all these three matches. They thought that he might be too too young and too inexperienced to to uh, you know, survive against the 
fearsome fast bowlers from the West Indies. But Dilip was quite keen that he he should be blooded earlier than later. Uh, but as it happened, you know, by the time Sachin was given his test cap, Dilip was no longer captain. So it went back and forth. Dilip has a very fine record as a as a captain of uh, of the Mumbai team, and uh, so I. I think that that period between the 80s and the early 90s was at least till Azharuddin became captain. And remember, Azharuddin didn't have all things hunky dory. When he was captain, he won everything at home and lost everything overseas. And every time he lost overseas, there was a demand for his removal from the captaincy. So it wasn't easy for him either. Now, now that was my next uh, question. So after Shrikant was asked from a successful tour of Pakistan where we didn't lose against a very strong Pakistan team. We drew yeah. the four-test series. Was Azhar the accidental choice? How, how did media view it? Where did that come from? Well, it was, again, uh, you know, completely unexpected development. You know, I mean, everybody knows, knows that story. It's there on social media and, you know, substantially it is true. Whether it's verbatim, true verbatim or not is difficult to say. But, uh, you know, Raj Singh Dungalpur, who was pretty much, you know, calling the shots in Indian cricket at that point in time, asked, uh, because Shrikant was also part of that gang or that group which was running foul of uh, the cricket administration for having gone to the West Indies. And uh, though Azhar had gone there, also West Indies, because I was on that West Indies tour and I went to New York City where, uh, you know, we saw these matches between uh, Imran Khan's 11 and Gavaskar 11. So, Azhar was also on that, uh, you know, on that on that tour, but they wanted to kind of break the, you know, the uh, the kind of they believed the Indian cricket board believed there was a caucus or a clique running from a clique of players running Indian cricket, so they wanted to break that caucus. And so Rajsing Dumbarpur asked Azharuddin, "Kya mera captain banoge?" You know, that's a very famous line in Indian yeah. cricket history now. And Azharuddin, I'm sure, was nonplussed. And I don't think he would have said ha na, but he would have nodded his head uh, in his typical way, characteristic way, which meant neither yes nor no, but which <laughs> Raj Dungalpur took to mean yes. And the rest is history. And, and you know, Azhar is also, again, uh, a very complex figure, you know, for, for all the known reasons. But uh, what, what doesn't get talked about often is uh, when he took over the side, there were a lot of former captains in the 11. And when you are not the obvious choice, how hard was his transition to the role? Because he captained so many former captains in the playing eleven. It was very difficult for Azhar. But the only thing which worked in his favour initially was that he was much loved by everybody who, had, who he had played with. Whether it was a Gavaskar, and Gavaskar retired by then when he became captain. Or a couple Dev. Or he was very thick with Sachin Tendulkar. Uh, when Sachin you know, made his break as a youngster. Very good with Ravi Shastri. Uh, who was his captain for the under-25 team. Very good with Dilip Bengtsarkar. So, he was very popular. He was very popular within the team itself. And, but, at the end of the day, people have their own ambitions. And, you know, and if the results are not forthcoming, which happened with uh, other, you know, 1991 World Cup, didn't do well, Australia Series lost. Uh, then you beat, at home in 93, you beat anybody who comes to home, comes for a home series. Then you go to South Africa and you lose there, etc. So, there are other players who think, hey, why can't I be captain? You know, this is, I mean, and the history of Indian cricket is littered with cases where 
if you lose, you know, the captaincy, the captaincy is replaced. It didn't happen. I think where Agarwal also helped a lot is, uh, is uh, by Ajit Wadikar, the late Ajit Wadikar, who was then the coach, come manager, so to speak, of the Indian team, who kind of ring-fenced Azharuddin against the ambitions of the other players for a while, for a, for a fairly long while, actually. Okay, so we are already up to an hour, but I have a few questions, if you don't mind. Can we go for a few more minutes and then we'll yeah, wrap this sure, up? Sure, sure. So, let's, uh, let's make a switch to Sachin Tendulkar again. Uh, nothing we can talk about is going to be new. At least, you know, a uh, lot of his uh, timeline is, you know, very, very well versed by his fans and, you know, followers of cricket. But uh, the coming of Tendulkar into his zone, where would you rank that? Uh, if uh, there were, like, say, top five events, if uh, World Cup 83 being one, where, that shaped Indian cricket, where would the, you know... Uh, coming of age of Tendulkar rank among those events, if you were to rank top five events? In my timeline, in the top three. You know, so I would say certainly uh, India winning the World Cup in 1983. Uh, and purely as a journalist watching a match, the India-Pakistan match in Sharjah where Javed Miyadad hit a last ball six, that was incredible. I mean, it was unthinkable and something that I'm, you know, I, I still can't get over, that I witnessed it. And then, of course, there is this young boy coming in as a 15-year-old or 16-year-old uh, to to play for India. Uh, you know, he's from Mumbai. So, and I'm a sports journalist. So, when, you know, he started making waves in Indian cricket uh, or junior cricket, I was keen to know him. But actually, I got pushed into this again, I was, as I mentioned earlier, by Dilip Bengsarka. I was then heading the magazine Sports Week. By that time, I had become the editor uh, of the magazine. And he called me up one day, Dilip Bengsakar, who was the captain of India, and said, let's go and watch this match at the CCI, at the Brabant Stadium. I said, you know, what's happening there? I don't know if there's, there's no Ranji match or anything. Then he, he Tindulkar, Sachin Tindulkar, ko ke dekhna hai, you know, he's, he's batting there. So I said, no, he's very promising. I have to see whether, you know, how good he is, this, that and the other. This is before he had made his debut for Ranji Trophy. So, captain of India says this very, you know, you have to take the cue. And I went and watched Sachin. And, uh, you know, he was an absolute marvel to watch even at that age, uh, the way he played. And I remember sitting alongside Ratsing Dungarpur. And, you know, Sachin was, what he was, he was toying with the bowling. He was batting, he was toying with the bowling. So, he would hit the ball over the top, the closing fielders. And then the captain of the fielding team would put the fielders on the on the fence to protect the boundaries. And Sachin would push into the gaps and run ones and twos, perhaps threes. And Rasing Dumbarpur nudged me and said, this, boy, this boy's cricketing sense is that of a 30-year-old, not of a 16 or, or a 14, 15-year-old. And it struck me as quite remarkable. And then very soon after that, I actually did an interview. Not I. I you know, I was part of the, you know, I was behind the scenes. But Sports Week magazine used to bring out a video called Grandstand, uh, which is about sports, anchored by Tom Alter, the actor. And the subject we had, one of the subjects, apart from Dilip Engstall, was the captain of the Indian team. This is before the team was chosen to the West Indies, uh, or just after the team was chosen to the West Indies tour. We had an interview with him outside Hindu Jimkhana with Sachin Tendulkar. So he came there, he stood, he was carrying his kid bag with his brother Ajit, you know, barely sprouting a moustache, uh, spoke in monosyllables 
And one of the questions which we had prepared, Tom and I, was ask him, how disappointed are you that you're not in the team? Because the selectors have thought that if you get hit by Ian Bishop and you know Malcolm Marshall or one of these fast bowlers, it might break your confidence forever. It might shatter your confidence. You might get physically hurt, but you also break your confidence. And this young boy, not quite 16, turns around and tells Tom Alter that if I get hit, I will learn faster. You know, and I found that quite astonishing. Eight, nine months later, he was part of the Indian team playing for, uh, you know, for India against Pakistan. Didn't have a great distinguished opening match, but he made a couple of half, half centuries. Uh, one match, of course, which everybody talks about, one innings is this half century he made it, Sialkot, where he got hit on the nose by another debutant in that series, Wakar Yunus. And, uh, you know, he shrugged away all the medical attention quickly and next ball he hit for four. And then, by the time the tour ended, there was the ODI series which got scrapped for political reasons and reasons of, you know, disturbances and all. But they had an exhibition, they had a match in Peshawar where he hit Abdul Qadir, if I remember correctly, for four sixes in an over. Yeah, I, I remember that series. I remember that match. Yeah, that was just breath, breathtaking. And that just brought alive Tendulkar, uh, Tendulkar's talent to the forefront. India versus Pakistan, Peshawar, Abdul Qadir bowling, this guy hit four sixes. This was extraordinary. I saw his first Test 100 at Old Trafford in 1990. I, saw, I had obviously seen his first Test match. I've seen his last Test match in Mumbai in 2013. 24-year-old career, amazing for its longevity, for its consistency, and for the records, of course, that he set up. But I think more than anything else, Sakib, it's for the kind of pressure he had to endure from almost day one, the pressure of expectation. You know, I can't think of any other player than, say, Don Bradman, after he became Bradman, who had to face the same kind of pressure of expectation from his country. But remember that India is a country of 130 crore, while Australia is a country of what? You know, maybe... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get the know. point. I mean, yeah, some, some some things there are no stats for, and that's where I think the greatness of Tendulkar. But that, that's, you cannot ignore that when you assess the greatness of Tendulkar. For somebody to do it for 24 years, going out there... There are, there are guys who are more savvy in the way they articulate their thoughts and the way they talk and maybe his records will be broken. But the pressure he had to, to, uh, to absorb. And you can definitely vouch for it because you were part of the cricket working office, which is the cricket ground at Bharat Sundaresan said in the last podcast. You were there. For fans, a match ends after the handshakes and the trophy presentation. But for the media commitments and the kind of... Uh, you know, uh, economic powerhouse Tendulkar was, his demands, his day doesn't end. He probably didn't have enough hours in the day and the way he handled with all class. No, that's yeah. definitely, there's, there's there's not enough to, to measure that. So let me quickly move towards a couple of other topics which may require some in-depth analysis from you. One is the chapel era and uh, also coinciding with the, you know, giving up of captaincy by Rahul Dravid after he became the third Indian captain to win a series in England. What is your recollection of, you know, what happened there again? A uh, lot has been made public. You know, it was a talk of the town when it was unfolding. Uh, and, of course, you know, we can have many opinions on this. But uh, try to break that down and also see what Indian cricket got from Chapel, the positive, positive aspect, you know, because we yeah. all have talked about how he wasn't a great man-management guy, but uh, that's not uh, from a too distant past, if you want to talk about that. 
Yeah. So, so Sakib, look, all marriages are not made in heaven. Sometimes marriages which look to have been made in heaven actually end up being, you know, hell of hellish relationship within months. You know, it happened. It happens in real life. You know, people who've been lovers, romantic, been in a romantic entanglement for eight, ten years. Suddenly, when they get married, it doesn't last for a year. It can happen. Uh, it's, it's, I, I attribute it to the vagaries of human nature. Saurabh Ganguly and Greg Chappell look to be marriage made in heaven, the Indian figure is concerned. Here was the captain of India, helped by the former captain of Australia in the 2004 series, 2003-04 series, uh, you know, helped him get a century, so, so Ganguly mentioned, become a better batsman on Australian pitches. India do extremely well in that series. They come back. And, you know, John Wright is quitting. He wants to go, go back, doesn't want to coach any further. And Ganguly pitches for uh, Greg Chappell as, as the coach. And remember, there was a process in place then to appoint a coach. And there would be people like Desmond Haynes or Mohinder Amarnath, etc., who would apply. And, you know, but if, if the recommendation comes from the captain of India, who is very powerful then, also because, you know, the board is also controlled by Jagmohan Balmiya. So there's another weight, there's more gravitas behind it. It looks like, wow, what a great, you know, situation Indian cricket finds itself in. The team is doing well. It's reached the final of the World Cup in 2003. Not won it, but reached the final. Overseas has been doing well. In England, in Australia, not losing the series. They won the Naturalist Trophy, and now you've got Greg Chappell, the Greg Chappell coming in. So what could be better? And then suddenly, within six, eight months, everything starts falling apart. Now, what exactly happened? Why? I, I think you know it has to do with the chemistry of the two people. So once you know, there's a difference between lover, uh, between being lovers, and between being married, if I may put it that way. So when it becomes a formal engagement, and I think Greg Chappell said, these are my, you know, uh, key result areas, KRAs that I have to do. He started thinking of his role differently. Uh, some Ganguly thought of his role vis-a-vis -vis the, the coach a little differently. And somewhere the discord became open and wide. Uh, and, you know, it got to a stage where it got into a very bitter situation. It got into such a bitter, bitter situation that the longest email I've ever read in my life was written by Greg Chappell to the Indian Cricket Authority about Sarov Ganguly from, from Zimbabwe while India was on tour there. And one thing led to another and, you know, Ganguly lost his, lost his captaincy because, uh, you know, a lot of things were working, I would imagine, against him. Uh, not the least that his own personal form was not the greatest at that point in time. And Greg Chappell was advocating very seriously, uh, I would imagine, informally, if not formally, that somebody else take over the captaincy because that would improve the performance of the team. And therefore, Rahul Dravid became captain. Now, Rahul Dravid, I thought, in my understanding, was that he got along extremely well with Greg Chappell. But I think, and I'm, I may be, you know, uh, this is obviously open to, to speculation, is that I think... Greg Chappell was thought of himself as a reformist, reform Indian cricket, because of his ideas. He thought he knew how 
cricket should be played this is the way you will produce winners and he wanted to pursue that but we all know in terms of you know human resource practices hr practices that you have to win over the trust and the faith of the people you have to sometimes be like them to win them over so there's an indian mindset there's an indian cultural ethos which sees things a little differently i think that's where chapel fell a little foul uh, of of uh, you know winning over yeah i i i followed that uh, era very closely and uh, you know again uh, and i remember famous ian chapel quote when uh, after the exit of his brother and he said it's uh, the irony of the situation is when he was brought on he was supposed to make the indian team transform into the australian mindset the australian toughness and when he was axed uh, one of the major uh, allegations against him he he didn't become indian enough so i think that's that kind of uh, to me showed you know the, how this situation again not everything came out through press and fans like me could consume but the that to me epitomized the the disconnect there between all parties concerned yeah also i think look it got to a stage where you know these things started coming out and the team having won in australia uh, i beg your pardon not in australia but in the west indies which is a big thing uh, but they had not won in pakistan in uh, in 2005 6 we lost a match at karachi i was there then we lost a series in south africa uh, having won the first test match so you know the results were stacking up against great chapel in test cricket though they had a magnificent run of uh, matches in odis where they kept winning match after match after match and then came the world cup 2007 and i think that was the you know the the last straw which broke the camel's back india got ousted in the in the first phase it was a very unusual kind of a format that the 2007 world cup was played in but india got beaten by bangladesh and we didn't even reach the second stage the second phase so greg chapel's you know neck was always on the line after that had india say for instance not forget about winning the world cup but had reached the final uh, like they had in 2003 then i think that greg chapel may have just you know not a himself decided to uh, precipitate his own departure or the bcci would have looked at it a little differently no the writing was on the wall you're absolutely right that world cup was huge and the unceremonious exit you know only made sense that that partnership you know uh, would not last so uh, so dravid again one of the only three captains to have won in england and then decides he cannot continue with the job and uh, it's no secret dravid is very well received by fans and also in media is a very popular guy you've covered him professionally so how did the media unit and you personally uh follow that story and you know did it surprise you him giving up captaincy just after winning in england he seemed exhausted has more come out of it since i was very surprised i was on that tour uh you know i uh, for the last match and the odi series uh look dravid's record as a captain is so underrated and understated because uh, he beat england in england as we know in 2007 he beat west indies in the west indies not many not many captains have done that yes the west indies is no longer the force it was in the 60s 70s and 80s but even so to win an away series was a terrific achievement beating england in england was an even bigger achievement uh the test series chandu bode was then the coach and manager because great chapel had gone uh and i didn't you know to be to be fair or to be honest i didn't expect dravid to give up the captaincy who gave up the captaincy you know it's not easy to give up the indian captaincy i know we've had some strange cases in india 
Rahul still gave up after winning the World Championship of Cricket, and uh, you know, Dhoni gave up in midway in a Test series uh, against Australia in 2014-15. But you know, you beat England in England, you don't want to give up the captaincy. But he did. Now, what was the reason? Fatigue, yes. To concentrate on his batting, yes. Those were obviously strong reasons, and he mentioned them. I also feel that somewhere he felt that he was not getting his way with the cricket administration in India. Maybe because he was seen as somebody close to Greg Chappell for a long while. Not that he let down his team or whatever else, but you know, and you know, Dravid's contribution to Indian cricket. I don't even need to highlight here. It's well documented, and we all know. So I think at that point in time, for him to give up the captaincy was a big story. Uh, it wasn't, in my opinion, Tom Tom enough or investigated enough. I still feel there is scope to investigate that. What really happened for him to give up the captaincy? Hmm. And uh, one would even throw a conspiracy theory. Someone like me, because you know it's easy for me to do that. That's why he stayed behind the scenes and worked with the junior team and never came forward to work with the senior team again. Two very unrelated uh, experiences. But uh, to someone like me, there, there's a connect. How he left that, he probably didn't want to be in the center and know how you know how much pressure and how much. Uh, uh, no, I, I think I have a take on that, which is a slightly different take, Sakib, and because I've spoken to him. One is that, look, when you quit from the team and your contemporaries, if they're still playing, then it, it makes a little sense not to be part of it, you know, because as a coach in a different role. So that I can understand. The other thing is, why has he opted for this junior thing is because it allows him to spend much more time in Bangalore, where the National Cricket Academy is based. Because, as he mentioned to me, and, and not that he told me this is the only reason, because he is bringing up two young sons. And his wife is a doctor who had resumed her career after he quit. So, I think he, he took a conscious decision to be, you know, yes, make these tours with the India A team or the India under 19 team, but they are not as demanding in terms of time, days, as well as, you know, the other associated pressures as it would be with the Indian cricket team. Okay, so yeah, I think uh, we are again in full overtime here. So let's wrap this up. Uh, I have a question and then we can, this could be the last. So out of the three uh, great Indian innings, which everybody talks about, Gavaskar against, uh, in Bangalore against Pakistan in that unsuccessful run chase, Sachin at Chennai and Lakshman at Kolkata, which is, according to you, the greatest. Uh, I'm sure you've seen them all. So if you want to rank them. Yeah, I mean, these are three, three of three of the greatest innings amongst, amongst the greatest innings that have been played, not just in Indian cricket, but I think in the history of cricket. So, difficult to seg- segregate the three in, in terms of ranking. But I would go with, uh, you know, with VBS Lakshman's uh, innings at Kolkata in 2001 as the number one because A, it turned the series on its head. Not the match again. In, in, in a sense, if I have to draw a parallel, it's like couple days, 175 not out. The impact it had. And it kind of gave Indian cricket the kiss of life after the match-fixing scandal. Uh, we won that series, but the turning point was obviously 281 not out at Kolkata. Uh, Gavaskar's 96 and Sachin's 136, if I remember correctly, both in a losing cause, both against Pakistan. Uh, I I would think that Gav- uh, the Gavaskar's innings was greater to, for, for the simple reason because that pitch was a was a dust bowl. It was a 
you know, terrible, terrible pitch to bat on. Uh, you know, apart from Gavaskar's 96, there was only one other score over 15 that match, and that came from Dilip Vengsarkar in the first innings of India. So you can imagine how poor and how bad that pitch was. Uh, you know, guys like Imran, I, I don't think Imran Khan bowled a single over in the second innings when India batted. Wasim Akram bowled a few and he got a couple of wickets. But uh, that's how, you know, it was a minefield. On that pitch to make 96 and come almost to leading India to victory at the age of 38 was a remarkable ex exhibition of technical virtuosity. And of course, the Sachin 136. But for him getting spasms, back pain, etc., I think India would have won that day. But what a great innings it was. Uh, unfortunately, finished in defeat for India. And we know that after that, uh, you know, Sachin was inconsolable uh, in the dressing room. But again, I mean, you know, of that inning, you'll hear more from guys like Sakhle and Mushtaq and all who bowled against him to know how well Sachin batted in that game. So, in that game. So, if you have to ask me for my ranking, I would say for the fact that India won the series, the test at Kolkata in 2001 and the series in that uh, in that year, 2001, VBS Lakshman and it transformed India from being, you know, scrutinized so harshly for the match-fixing thing into becoming a completely different team. And, you know, Dada Ganguly's emergence as a leader happens from there, starts from there. And then there's Gavaskar's innings of 96. I may be biased because, you know, that happened in my younger days as a journalist. But Sachin's 136, again, a great knock. Yeah, rightfully said. There's not much to separate, but I think that's a very honest way of, uh, you know, uh, ranking those three uh, all-time great efforts. So, yeah, this is an abrupt end, but, uh, you know, we could have gone forever. But again, you know, uh, I have to be respectful of your time. Uh, and hopefully yeah. the listeners enjoyed uh, this, uh, you know, nostalgic recollection of, you know, facts and, and memories. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, sir. I, I learned quite a lot and hopefully we can have you one more time at least uh, to discuss the Nawab of Patadi. Thanks, Akiv. Anytime you say. Thank you so much.